Hello, this is Lafayette Faust, creator of the Nevermore Hollows podcast. Thank you for making the show a success. Please take a moment to subscribe, give five stars, comment, and share the show with your friends. It's the best way to help us grow and to be able to continue to provide quality horror content. Also, please support our new art director, Chris Madman Goins, at Black Sheep Studios TN on Instagram. He has some amazing Nevermore Hollows art for sale, signed by the both of us, as well as many other original pieces I think you're going to love. Now, for you horror hounds who like to have a good laugh, I invite you to check out my other podcast. It's called The Three Uncool Cats. In it, my two friends and I sit in a basement and discuss music, movies, and whatever else comes into our warped minds. I would really appreciate it if you would give it a listen. Now, with that out of the way, I invite you to sit back, turn on a light, and prepare yourself. A few weeks ago, I told you the tragic events that occurred when Robert Johnson's haunted guitar showed up here in Nevermore Hollows. For those of you who do not know, Robert Johnson is the man who sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads one dark night for the opportunity to create the genre of music we now call the blues. Tonight, I will tell you that fateful story. I will also tell you the terrifying events that happened the night he showed up in Nevermore, which was the night the Hellhounds came to collect the devil's fee. So with that, sit back, turn on a light, and prepare yourself. Clarksdale, Mississippi, June 1st, 1929, 12.01 a.m. The young black man dripped sweat as he walked toward the intersection of two rutted dirt roads. He was late for an important meeting, and though the humid Mississippi night clung to him like a blood-soaked blanket, he had chosen to attend this meeting wearing his only suit. He carried no money, for he had none to carry. He had with him his battered guitar, which he carried in a homemade case that looked more like a child's casket than a protective vessel for his instrument. His name was Robert Johnson, and he was in pain. He ached with a dream that was impossible for him to achieve in the segregated South, where a black man was labeled as free, but treated as not. His dream was to rise above the soul-breaking poverty that he suffered every single day of his life, and he wanted to live forever. He walked in the dark, for there was no form of artificial light along this stretch of rural road. He heard the distant rumble of thunder and stopped to peer into the gloom around him. Vast fields of mummified corn stalks lined both sides of the road and limited his view to only a few feet. He looked up into the sky, hoping to catch a glimpse of the stars above, but instead only saw the churning black clouds of the impending storm. 
There was a sudden rustling in the rows of withered corn stalks to his left. He realized that there was no wind to cause this rustling and was about to call out to ask who was there when he heard an ominous growl emanate from deep within the field. Robert took a step back toward the middle of the road. He hoped that the animal, which had to be a dog and a very big one at that, would make its way on past him and wander further into the fields to look for rabbits to chase. Instead, the animal gave a deeper, more menacing growl. The wilted corn stalks began to rustle and sway as if they had suddenly become possessed by angry spirits. The hairs on his arms and neck tingled with fear, and he turned and ran toward the intersection. Hopefully, the man he was to meet would be there and help him scare away this beast that seemed to have malevolent intent. He ran as fast as his legs could carry him, his guitar case weighing him down, causing him to run at an odd, loping gallop. Even as terror threatened to overtake him, the thought never occurred to him to toss away the guitar. It was the only thing that gave him a measure of peace in the midst of his misery, and he refused to part with it. The thing in the corn gave chase. It ran closer to the road, but still far enough in the field that Robert could only catch frantic glimpses at its hulking shape. It seemed to have the body of a massive dog, but he could swear that at times it ran upright on two legs. Like a man. Full-on terror gripped him, and he raced into the center of the crossroads. The man he was to meet was not there. He gave a terrified glance toward the snarling thing that was chasing him, his heart hammering as he prepared to fight. But the beast was no longer there. It was suddenly quiet. There were no growls, no rustling of corn stalks. He appeared to be alone. He set his guitar case down on the dirt and pulled a handkerchief from his pocket. He used it to mop the sweat from his face, and he took a couple deep breaths to calm his hammering heart. The rustling began again, startling him. Instead of a snarl, there was a slow, deep laugh as a tall, impeccably dressed black man stepped out of the field. He wore a black suit, and a long red tie sliced a bloody gash against his white shirt. Damn, boy, the man said. His voice was as deep as the pit, and his eyes were as black as the void between the stars. His smile was full of glimmering white teeth. Why are you running scared? Robert knew that what he had heard and seen in the corn was no man. Yet this man had clearly stepped from the same field where he had seen the loping beast. The hair on the back of his neck quivered. He was more scared than he had ever been in his life, and he wanted to leave his guitar behind and run away from this place as fast as he could. But he was more afraid of an unfulfilled life as a poor unknown sharecropper. So he steeled himself and said, Why you messing with me, foe? You like to got yourself killed. The man with the glimmering teeth threw back his head and gave a rumbling laugh. I like you, Robert, he said. You got a spark in you that intrigues me. Now, why don't you forgive my little parlor trick and let's get down to business. I have more appointments tonight. Robert stood a little straighter. Yes, sir. 
Let's get it going. How does this here work? The man with the red tie scratched the small beard on his chin. Well, he said, it's real easy, son. You want something you can't have, and I can give it to you. All you have to do is tell me what it is. Robert wasn't a stupid man. He knew that no kind of bargain was that easy. You got to get something out of this, so I tell you what it is I be wanting, and it be going to cost me a price. I want to know what that price be. The dark man's smile widened. Son, you know I'm the devil. Everybody I do business with is charged the same price, no matter what it is they ask for. Robert's heart pounded, part in fear, part in angst for the one thing he wanted. This was it, the time to choose which path he would follow, and he was surprised at how easy it was to make the choice. I got to get this pain off of me, he said. I can't live one more day knowing I've got to work myself to death and nobody knows it. The devil's smile turned to feral. So, we have a deal, son. I give you fame, and you give me your soul. Robert didn't hesitate. Yes, sir. We got a deal. The devil pointed at the guitar in its homemade casket. And you want that guitar to be the thing that helps you rise above this life? Yes, sir. I wants to play that guitar like nobody else. The devil bent down, took the guitar from its case, and began to play. Robert had never heard anything like it in his life. What the devil played was mournful and jubilant at the same time. I see the pain in you, boy, the devil said as he played his mournful tune. I smell it deep in your soul. I can promise you fame. But I can't make that pain go. When the devil was finished, he knelt and put the guitar back in its case. The next time you play this guitar, you're going to change the world. He stood, patted the dust from his pants, and stuck out his hand. When we shake on this, there ain't no turning back. You in? Robert glanced at the devil's hand and shook. Yes, sir. It's a deal. Robert bent over and grabbed his guitar. When he looked up to say goodbye, he saw that he was alone. He realized that the guitar no longer felt like something made of wood. It now felt warm to the touch, and it seemed to shudder against him as if it were somehow alive. He began to strum a tune, and at that moment, thunder rolled... Lightning struck, and the rain began to fall. March 30th, Evening Shade Rest Home, Nevermore Hollows. Blake Slinger leaned back in the warped plastic chair as the old geezer sitting across from him took a long draw on his unfiltered camel cigarette. Blake considered himself a serious writer, though he had yet to publish either of his two novels. So far, he paid the bills by writing human interest stories for the Nevermore Gazette. He had not wanted to take this particular assignment, which was an interview with Charlie Hopkins, or as he had been known for most of his life, Blind Charlie. 
In his youth, Blind Charlie had been a legendary blues guitar player. But now, on his 92nd birthday, he was a shriveled bag of bones confined to a battered wheelchair and a living in a grimy old folks' home because nobody cared about him or the music he played. Sir, my name is Blake Slinger, and I'm with the Nevermore Gazette. Blind Charlie took a surprisingly long draw on his camel and let the smoke waft out of his nose and mouth. Blake thought it looked as if the old man's soul was trying to escape the desiccated husk that served as his body. Why would you want to give an old man like me an interview? He rasped. It sounded as if his throat was lined with sandpaper. Two reasons, sir, Blake replied. First, my editor is a lover of the blues, and he said you played guitar with some of the greatest blues players of all time. Blind Charlie closed his eyes and let his head loll back on his skinny neck. His wrinkled old face lifted up toward the ceiling. For a moment, Blake thought that the old man had died. Then, Charlie said, Yeah, I used to play. Yep, I did play with some mighty good bluesmen. Blake pulled his phone from his pocket and placed it on the scarred coffee table between them. He pulled up an app and hit the big red button to begin recording the conversation. May I ask you who some of them were? Charlie continued to keep his face turned to the ceiling, his eyes closed. A sad smile crawled across his face, revealing that he was missing most of his teeth. I played with them all, son. You name them, I played with them. Blake had done a little research on the subject before doing this interview, so that he could have a few points of reference. Did you ever play with Muddy Waters? He asked, knowing that Muddy Waters was considered to be one of the greatest blues men. Charlie opened his eyes and let his head drop down to a level stare. He leaned forward. Did I play with Muddy? You kidding me, son? I taught the man how to play guitar. There wouldn't have been no Muddy if it hadn't have been for Blind Charlie. That brings me to the second reason, and actually the main reason I was sent to interview you, Blake replied, noting that Blind Charlie's eyes were clear and bright, not covered in white cataract. You have supposedly been blind since you were a kid, but the doctors here say that you got your sight back a couple of days ago. You can see clearly now? That'd be right, Charlie said. Can you tell me about all that? Blake asked. Charlie raised a gnarled hand to his face and thoughtfully scratched his scruffy chin. The camel dangled precariously between his index finger and middle finger. The cigarette smoke curling around his head like a tobacco-stained halo. The story about how I got blind and got my sight back ain't no story you're going to want to believe. Blake was obviously at the mercy of this old man. Okay, he said in an effort to move the interview along. Let's hear it. Charlie bobbled his head in an arthritic nod. Okay, son, but I warn you, it ain't an easy story for the likes of you. My story starts the night Robert Johnson died. Blake recalled from his research that Robert Johnson was the man who created the blues. He supposedly sold his soul to the devil and died a relatively young man. To the followers of the blues, Robert Johnson was a god. 
He was killed one night after a gig at a juke joint located in an old tobacco field, right? Blake said. A jealous husband poisoned Robert because he was dancing with his wife. Charlie gave a wet, wheezy laugh that metamorphosed into a long death rattle. Shit, son. That'd just be the story that got told by all the people who don't believe. Believe what? Blake asked. Charlie cleared his throat, then squinted at Blake. For people who don't believe in the devil and the deals he makes. Do you believe in the devil, son? Not really, Blake said. It's just human nature to do bad things. Charlie shook his head as if he were listening to a child make a complete fool of himself. All right, then, he said. I give you that. We can agree that folks are just born bad, but we can also disagree on the why they are bad. They is a devil, son, and he is in the business of making deals. And he made his first one a long time ago in a pretty little garden where he told the first lie ever told. It was the lie that caused the mess of all this world. But even though you don't believe any of that, I'm going to tell you my story anyway. And when I'm done, maybe it'll make a believer out of you too. And it just might someday save your unbelieving soul. Blake said, I doubt that. Charlie frowned and cleared his throat. If you done your research right, then you know it be said that Robert Johnson made his own deal with the devil at the crossroads. But what you don't know, that ain't nobody knows, is that on the night his deal ran out, the night he died, them hellhounds came and got him. And they dragged him deep down into the fiery pit. That makes for a good story, sir, Blake said. But I find that hard to believe. It's true, Charlie replied, leveling his eyes at Blake. I won't give you no lie. How can you possibly know that these hellhounds drug him to hell, Blake said. Charlie leaned forward and pointed his gnarled finger at him. I know it because I was there when them dogs came and got him, and it's been something that's haunted me to this very day. Blake was skeptical. The old geezer was out of his mind. You were there, he said. When the hellhounds came and got Robert Johnson, you saw that. Were you even born then? Charlie dropped his gaze to the floor and shook his head, as if to say he was suffering for the fool sitting in front of him. Yes, son, I was born then. You see, Robert Johnson was my uncle. He was married to my mama's sister. They married young, and she done died only a few months later, when they was both seventeen. And on August 16, 1938, the night them hellhounds took him, I was eight years old. And you want to tell me this story, Blake said? Why? Charlie took another long draw from the camel and blew out the smoke. Because this is a story of how I lost my sight, and then I done got it back. And because I need to unburden my soul, but I gots to warn you. Warn me of what? Blake asked. You need to take heed to this lesson in this story, Charlie said. Because if you don't, you might find your own leg in the jaws of them hellhounds being drug off to the pit. 
Blake was becoming intrigued by this crazy old man. Charlie's wild claim of hellhounds was better than what he had expected the interview to yield. He decided to play along in the hopes that this could turn into something more than a stupid human interest piece. He was beginning to think it could lead to a book that just might get published. I'm game, Charlie, he said. Tell me about that night. Charlie was suddenly overcome with a fit of coughing. It was full of phlegm and fatigue. When he finally got control of himself, his face was covered in a sweaty sheen. He grabbed a yellow-stained handkerchief from his shirt pocket and wiped away the greasy sweat from his face. Me and my mama. We lived out at the end of the dirt road out where the Pink Flamingo's trailer park now sits. It was all just field and woods back in them days, and we was in a two-room shack. Didn't have no electricity or running water back then. Only light was by candle or lantern. Anyways, Robert came to our house about midnight, and he had this crazy wild look in his eyes. I was already in bed, but when I heard he, how he was a-wailing to my mama, I got up and came into the kitchen. Robert was sitting at the table, a terrible, terrible fear on his face, and he was telling my mama that them dogs was after him. That would be the hellhounds, Blake asked. Yes, that's what he was talking about. He said they chased him all the way from Mississippi. At first, we, di we didn't understand what he was talking about, but when my mama asked him what he meant, he put his head down on the table and he said in a voice full of suffering and sorrow that it was the hellhounds that was after him. It, it scared me when I heard that. You believed him? Charlie was staring down at the floor, nodding his head. Blake realized that the old man wasn't just staring at the floor, but through it to that night a lifetime ago. I was an eight-year-old boy being raised by a superstitious woman. That's why I think my uncle Dunn came all the way from Mississippi to our house. He knew my mama was a woman who had the sight. The sight, Blake asked. Mama could see things that most other people couldn't see, Charlie said. People from all around would come to her and ask her to help them make decisions on this or that. It usually involved love or money or revenge. This is too good, Blake thought. You mean that your mother was a psychic? Well, that's what most people nowadays call it, Charlie replied. She could get a sense of what was going to happen, but they was more. She could sometimes see them spirits. Spirits, Blake said. You mean ghosts? Charlie pulled his gaze from the floor. His face was again covered in sweat. Sh sure, sometimes she could see ghosts. What I'm talking about is the spirits. The good ones and the bad ones. Blake considered this for a moment, trying to understand what he meant. Weren't ghosts and spirits the same thing? Then it hit him. You mean that she could see angels and demons? Charlie nodded and mopped the sweat from his face. Yep, she could see them both. But she always said there were a whole lot more of them demons and angels to be found. She believed most folks don't invite angels in because they no longer believe in them. 
and I find that funny. How so? Blake asked. Because most people nowadays believe in evil, but they don't believe in God. They give in to evil without nary a fight, but they sure do resist the help of the Lord. Not sure if I follow that line of logic, Blake said. Why would God let evil into the world? Charlie tilted his head and squinted at Blake as if he were naive. You looking at it all wrong, son. It ain't the question of why God would allow evil. He went and let us choose. And we chose evil at the beginning of time, and we still is choosing it. Then we blame him for the mess we create when it all goes bad. Blake wasn't a believer in the supernatural and definitely wasn't religious, but he did like a good ghost story. So, your Uncle Robert comes into your mother's house in the hopes that she could help him, right? Charlie nodded, started to take a draw on the camel, but seemed to think better of it. Yep. He started begging her to help him. He asked her if she had any kind of spell that could help him fight off them dogs. Could your mother do that? Yep. She, she could work a spell every now and then, but she couldn't work a spell against the devil or his hounds. That, and, that, and that's just what she told him. He couldn't have taken that very well. Well, he sure didn't. He started crying like I ain't never seen a man cry. It wasn't no sissy cry, mind you. It was a cry that was as empty of all hope. It was the worst thing I ever heard in all my young life. That is, up until them hellhounds came into the kitchen to get him. Hound, Blake said. You saw the hellhounds come into your mother's house and drag Robert Johnson away. Charlie shook his head with such emphasis that Blake thought the old geezer would snap his brittle vertebrae. No, I didn't see him drag him away. I went blind the moment them dogs tore down the door. I believe the good Lord took my sight from me right then to spare me the horror of what them dogs did to poor old Robert. Blake tried to repress a smile but failed. It was part disbelief, part excitement that this crazy old blues man might just give him a story that would get published. You go on and smile like you don't believe a damn thing I'm saying, Charlie replied. But it's true that I was blind until two days ago. Blake held up his hands to calm the old geezer. Charlie, it's not that I don't want to believe you, but can you realize just how far-fetched this all sounds? Either way, I want to hear how this story ends. Please continue. I'm going to tell you the rest, Charlie said, but I hope you get beyond your disbelief. I sense a something you want, but you can't get. You got to hear me and be careful, because that kind of desperation is dangerous. Blake tried to not let the old coot get under his skin. Finish the story, Charlie, and tell me what happened two days ago that made you get your sight back. Charlie sat up straighter in his wheelchair. Uh, all right. I was outside in the garden listening to the birds and minding my own business. A man walks up to me and he asks me if I want to see the sunset. I told him I hadn't seen the sunset in 80-some years. He then rubs his hands on my eyes and tells me I'm going to see that there's a special reason for the healing I was about to get. And I'm telling you, after he was gone, I began to see some light. 
As the day wore on, I was able to see more and more. And by the time that sunset, I could see just as good as I did before them dogs came crashing through the door and drug Robert to hell. How did it feel to see the sunset after all that time? Blake asked. Glorious, Charlie replied. That's pretty remarkable, Blake said. Yep, it sure is, Charlie replied. Anyways, I don't got to get you to believe in anything I done told you. All I got to do is tell you my story, then my work be done. It was a medical fact that Charlie had been blind, and Blake felt that his restored sight was one of those medical mysteries that sometimes happens, and that he was embellishing the story for dramatic effect. So, the night the dogs took Robert, what exactly did you see before you went blind? Charlie's face melted into a frown. Well, before them dogs came, Robert was on the floor crawling around on all fours like a dog himself, screaming this awful scream. It sounded part animal, part man, but it was all agony. The way he was wailing hurt my heart in a way I never knew a heart could be hurt. I thought I'd never hear anything so awful until that growling started outside the door. Go on, Blake prodded when Charlie paused. Robert was a man with a soul in torture, Charlie said. He was foaming at the mouth like he was rabid. He would pray out loud for the Lord to save him. Then he'd start growling and snarling like some kind of beast. When them dogs started clawing at the door... Robert began smashing his head against the floor like he was trying to kill himself so them dogs could get in at him. His head was bleeding bad, and there was blood running down his face. Blake was on the edge of his seat. What was your mother doing? She did the only thing she could do, son. She was on her knees praying for the Lord to spare Robert. Blake considered this for a moment. So the hounds are growling at the door. What happened next? Charlie took a draw on his cigarette before giving his reply. He let the smoke waft out of his mouth and answered into the tobacco-stained haze around his head. What happened next? Hell is what happened next. Go on, Blake prompted. The snarling and the growling got worse. Then there was this banging and clawing on the door. Something started hitting the door real hard, making it rattle against his frame. Mama was on the floor on her knees, saying a prayer for her and me. I skittered under the table. Robert was crawling on the floor, begging God for mercy, but getting none. I was scared. I was real scared. Your mother didn't try to save you, Blake said. Charlie gave a dismissive wave of his hand. As he did, the ashes from the cigarette broke off and swirled in the air for a moment like charred spirits. Them dogs wasn't coming for me, son. So your soul is clean? Blake asked. Charlie swiped at the ashes that had settled onto his pants, knocking them into the floor. There was a time when I was playing with them blues men that my soul got real dirty. But my, my soul now's good. And when I'm finished with this story, my soul is going to be unburdened. 
I guess confession is good for the soul, Blake said. Charlie ignored the snarky comment. The door broke down. It fell in all kinds of pieces. They was burning and charred at the edges like something had used a hot fire to blow it down. For a long minute, we couldn't see anything on the other side of the door but swirling smoke and darkness. And it wasn't a natural darkness either. It was pitch black, like there was nothing on the other side of that door. It must have been the darkness that existed before the Lord spoke light into existence. Then, we saw them eyes. There was a long pause as Charlie shuddered. They was glowing a deep orange. Six of them there in the darkness. And they was as huge as plates. Then, them dogs stepped into the room and we saw that it wasn't three separate dogs, but one great big dog with three heads. Eyes glowing with hate and purpose. The middle head glared at Robert. The other two looked around the room. Each head was different. The middle head looked like a wolf. The one on the right kind of looked like a bear's head. The, the head on the left was the one that looked least like a dog. It had the shape of a dog, but it had the mouth like a shark, with more teeth that seemed, than seemed possible it turned and it looked at me and when our eyes met that's when I lost my sight. So how do you know what happened next? Blake asked. He realized that he was leaning forward in his chair. Charlie looked at his cigarette with obvious longing. He clearly wanted to take a drag but now seemed afraid of the fire at the tip. He dropped it into a half-filled plastic cup that was sitting on the table. He turned his attention to Blake and said, I know what happened because I heard the dogs tearing at him. Seemed like they was pulling him apart limb by limb. He was screaming and crying and praying. Then they drug him out of the house, through the door and out into that awful darkness down into hell. Blake leaned back in his chair and considered Charlie's story for a long moment. So Robert Johnson didn't die of poisoning. He was dragged off to hell because he sold his soul to the devil. That's what you're telling me, and you expect me to believe it. Charlie gave the most direct stare that Blake had ever experienced. It's the truth, son. Blake felt the curious sensation of being exposed by Charlie's intense stare. He didn't like it, and he looked down at the phone to ensure it was still recording. He knew that Charlie had told all of his story except for one piece that needed to be wrapped up. You said the man who gave you back your sight told you it was for a special reason. Did he say what it was? Charlie paused, causing Blake to look back at him. He told me I was getting my sight back so I could look you in the eye and tell you something powerful, important. Blake had come in expecting to be bored to tears, but instead he had been taken on a wild ride that he didn't think could get any wilder. Some stranger gave you back your sight after 80 years so you could see the sunset and look into my eyes? That's the craziest part of your story yet, Charlie. How did this man even know I would be here? Charlie shook his head. 
I can't answer how he knew you was going to be here, son. And I don't got no idea who he was. But he told me if I promised to tell you this story, then look you in the eye and give you a message at the end of it, my reward would be seeing that beautiful sunset. Blake was not superstitious, but for some reason a tingle of apprehension slithered down his spine. The hairs on his arms and the back of his neck quivered. What is the message? Charlie leaned so close Blake could smell his tobacco breath. And just as he had promised the stranger who had given him the gift of a sunset, he looked directly into Blake's eyes. He said, the devil knows your name, son, and he's coming to make you a deal, and you need to take heed of the story you done been told. Blake was unable to repress a cold shudder, but quickly replaced it with a skeptical smile. I think I'll be okay. Charlie's eyes squinted with doubt. I hope so, son. But I can see you don't believe, even though I'm sitting right here in front of you, miraculously seeing like I ain't seen since I was a little boy. Makes no difference to me. I told my story. I'm unburdened. And now, I believe I'm going to say goodbye and go home. Go home? Blake asked, confused by Charlie's curious statement. Charlie leaned back in the wheelchair closed his eyes, took one last breath, and died. Blake shot up from his chair and called for the nurse, who stepped over and took Charlie's pulse. She looked up and shook her head, confirming he had passed. Blake left the rest home in a daze and out of sorts. It was partly that he'd never seen anyone die before, but it was also Charlie's assertion that the stranger had known that the interview would happen and had given him such a disturbing message to convey. He stopped at his car, which was an old Honda with dents and dings and fading paint, the only thing he could afford as he pursued success as a rider. He looked around him at the beautiful sunlit day, the birds chirping, the bees buzzing, and the dazed sensation began to ebb. By the time he had pulled out onto the county road, his mind was swirling with how to write the story he'd been told. He parked in the small lot behind the hundred-year-old building on Main Street that served as Nevermore Gazette's office and stepped inside through the back door. Abigail Brown, the only other reporter on staff, walked up to him, a big smile splayed across her face, and said, "'Congratulations!' "'For what?' he asked, confused." You'll see, she said. The boss wants to see you ASAP. He's in his office. Blake made his way into Gene Jones's office, the editor-in-chief of the paper. When he stepped inside, Gene was sitting at his desk. He looked up and gave a wide smile. There you are. We've been waiting for you to get back. Blake looked around the room. There was no one there but the two of them. Okay, I'm confused, he said. Why is everybody congratulating me? Jean stood. I have some excellent news. I was contacted by an agent who wants to represent you. He says he has two publishing houses who want to buy your books. Isn't that amazing? Blake was stunned. Please don't be lying. I'm not lying, said Jean. 
you're on your way and I'm so proud of you. The agent is here. He just stepped into the restroom and he'll be back in a moment. This seems unreal, Blake said. I submitted to 50 agents. Which one is it? That would be me, said a man behind him who then gave a deep, long laugh. Blake turned to see a tall black man with a glimmering smile. He was impeccably dressed in a black suit with a bright red tie that looked like a bloody gash against his white shirt. You want something you can't have, but I'm the man who can give it to you. What do you say we make a deal?